Hello, and welcome back for another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and today's episode begins our series on agorism. I am officially done depressing you on everything related to corruption and conspiracy. I know there was plenty that got left out, but there, I feel, was plenty that was included. And I included everything that I could within reason and went as in-depth as I felt I reasonably could. I just had to balance the amount of time I can put into each podcast, like how long each podcast can take and how deep I can go, and that would determine how much content I can pack into that amount of time. And so I tried to balance that the best I could. Hopefully it was to an extent that pleased you and was helpful for you and you enjoyed. And if not, let me know. Let me know if there's anything else you want me to expand on or cover or that I left out. Um, Like I said, there is so much that I could discuss related to corruption and conspiracy in the government and finance and education, all this stuff. And so I covered what I could. And that's it. And so now we're going to move on to agorism. This gets us into more of a practical application of the things that we have gone over lately. So basically, when we understand that there is a lot of corruption that goes on in the government, governments are very inefficient, things of this nature, governments don't really operate within our individual best interests. So what do we do about that? Because we typically will have our individual best interests at heart. That's what I want to do is what's best for me and my family. And the government isn't necessarily looking out for me and my family. They, if you give them the credit of being a good government, they're looking out for what's best for society as a whole, which oftentimes is different than what is best for me and my family. So how do we operate within this system? Now, I will give you a heads up that after we cover this agorism section and series, then we're going to actually look into government as a structure and how is it impractical and inefficient and ineffective and immoral, lots of things like that, that we will actually dig into how the system of government itself and how it operates in today's world, how that system itself is impractical, immoral, all these kinds of things, and then look at some alternatives. And so that's what we'll get into after agorism. But first, I wanted to basically get something out there that was actionable, that was practical, that you can apply in your life and that I am applying in my life. And I'll try to mention that this podcast is not about me. It's about getting information out to you and out to the general public, getting this out there, this stuff that I feel is extremely important that we all should know and be aware of. But I know a lot of times it does help when someone that is covering a certain subject has experience with it themselves and can give a little bit of insight on that and can say, yes, I have tried this. Yes, this does work, that kind of thing. And so I will give little inputs on that. Again, I'm not going to get into my personal life, but um, I do have experience with some of this. I do live this out to an extent. And so I can touch on that as well. So today's episode specifically is going to be on agorism kind of as a whole, And we'll talk about what agorism is, and we'll get into ways to apply agorism to our individual lives related to things like food and energy and stuff in general, commerce, all this kind of stuff. How do we apply these principles to 
all these areas of our lives. We'll cover both ways of dealing within the system from an agorist perspective as much as possible, but also about being outside of the system and self-sufficiency and self-reliance, and we'll cover things related to that as well. So that'll be today's episode, and then we'll move on to some other areas of agorism and examples in the next few episodes later on. So with today's episode, let's go ahead and just get started with what is agorism. And let's start off with pronunciation, because usually when I hear someone talking about agorism, I usually hear it pronounced agorism. And agorism kind of flows a little better, I think. But when the term was coined by Samuel Edward Conkin III, he termed it agorism, and that's how he pronounced it. And when you go back to the root word that agorism is based off of, that is agora, the pronunciation would signify that agora would be agorism. And so that is, number one, why you hear me pronounce it agorism, unless I slip and say it the other way, and that does happen sometimes. But if you hear it referred to with a different pronunciation, and that would be agorism, it's the same thing. And it's not that one side is wrong and one side is right. I believe that it would be best to use it the way it was originally intended, and that goes back to the root word it's based off of, but other people use a different pronunciation. It doesn't really matter. We all say the same thing. So on to the burning question that may be on your minds if you're uninitiated to the concept. What is agorism? Well, agorism relates to activity and lifestyle that takes place outside of the system. What you can do that does not involve um, government or the state in any way. That's roughly what agorism is. But I would like to give you a much better definition and go over what the inventor, I would say, of agorism called it. And so I'm going to go ahead and read to you a little bit to give a very clear definition of exactly what is involved here. So starting now. Agorism is a libertarian social philosophy that advocates creating a society in which all relations between people are voluntary exchanges by means of counter-economics, thus engaging with aspects of peaceful revolution. It was first proposed by libertarian philosopher Samuel Edward Konkin III around 1974. It comes from the classical Greek word agora, referring to an open place for assembly and market. According to Konkin, counter-economics and agorism were originally fighting concepts forged in the revolutionary atmosphere of 1972-1973. Konkin credits the Austrian school, and particularly Ludwig von Mises, as the base of economic thought leading to agorism and counter-economics. And now for a quote from Konkin himself. The goal of agorism is the agora, the society of the open marketplace as near to untainted by theft, assault, and fraud as can be humanly attained is as close to a free society as can be achieved. And a free society is the only one in which each and every one of us can satisfy his or her subjective values without crushing others' values by violence and coercion. End quote. And so for a little more reading, though, the concept of counter-economics is the most critical element of agorism. It can be described as such. The counter-economy is the sum of all non-aggressive human action which is forbidden by the state. 
Counter-economics is the study of the counter-economy and its practices. The counter-economy includes the free market, the black market, the underground economy, all acts of civil and social disobedience, all acts of forbidden association, including sexual, racial, and cross-religious, and anything else the state, at any place or time, chooses to prohibit, control, regulate, tax, or tariff. The counter-economy excludes all state-approved actions, the white market, and the red market, which would be violence and theft not approved by the state. So that is what agorism is. I hope that gives a pretty good idea for you and a good summary there that it's really anything that takes place outside of the system, outside of the state, that can either be something that you're just doing on your own, it could be something related to political activism but outside of the political system itself, or it could be something that is black market and totally illegal. It involves a lot of different things. There is a symbol for agorism, and that would be the Greek letter A with a three in the top right corner, so A to the third power, and that's what Konkin said relates to agora, anarchy, and action. And that is what is all involved in the term and the idea of the philosophy of agorism. So the obvious question here is why? Why would we be concerned about this? Why does this matter? Why would I want to apply this to my life? Well, one of the main reasons is to keep your own money and your own property. I would think that most of us would like to do that. We don't want to give up more of our money or lose more of our property to the state, to the government. And so there are ways of doing this. Another motivation might be to not fund the state. I will almost guarantee you that every single citizen of every single country in the modern world has a complaint, at least one, with the government that they fund through their taxes and through inflation. And so if they could withhold some of their money from the state, then maybe they could withhold some of the funding for these things that they do not agree with. Another reason overall would be self-sufficiency and local reliance. So instead of having to rely on the state and on the government and needing them for the things we need to survive and live our normal lives, what if we can provide a lot of that on our own and not be reliant on somebody else and be able to be self-sufficient? That would be a great thing to be able to do. Um, It's very difficult to do this in the majority of things in our life. But it's actually really easy to do this in select areas. Depending on who you are and what your life looks like, different aspects here will be easier, will be harder, will be already being done by you, or maybe not even possible by you. So apply this to what works for you. We're all different. But we all can apply a lot of these things and receive some very good benefits from doing so. Some other benefits we can achieve by implementing some of these things in our lives would be lowering costs for ourselves and our family, and increasing income. We can better control our health. We can better control the quality of our food and our products. We can do a lot of things that impact much more than just making a statement against the government. That's not what this is about, although that is an aspect of it. It's really about having freedom. 
that is the main thing that we are free. We are not reliant on the government and the system that we are not held back by the government and the system and that we can get the benefits that we are giving up when we do rely on and work within the government and the system. And so all these things are what we're really trying to achieve. We're really trying to make our lives better and not just our lives, but our families and those that are impacted in our immediate vicinity. So for today's episode, we're going to look at some key areas here. We've got food and related things. We've got energy and related things. And we've got physical items and stuff in general. Those are the categories that we are going to focus on today. So to begin with, let's start off with food. And for each one of these, I'm going to start off as close to the system roughly as I can get and end with as close to self-sufficiency as we can get. So let's start off with the easy stuff. Now, when it comes to food, it is very vital to our lives. We need food. We have to eat to survive. Not only to survive, in order to be healthy, we need certain types of food. And if we get into health, we would probably prefer food that is not tainted by chemicals that are bad for us. We will talk more about taxes and money in the next episode. This is our episode that typically focuses on government. Usually we do government money education, so technically this is a government episode, but you know, it's a loose term in this. Agorism is basically anti-government in general, but this one will focus on that stuff, and next time we'll focus on the money and financial issues, taxes, things like that. But that is part of this, and it applies to food as well as all these other things. Anything that you are not having to buy in a format that a lot of taxes will go to the government from, if you can avoid that, then that is keeping money out of the state's hands and getting that money into other people's hands, which is what we want. We want to keep the money ourselves. We don't want to give it to a state that is going to use it in a way that we don't agree with. So let's start off with a practical application of this. So let's start off with where you buy your food. Now, most of us will go to a grocery store. Which grocery store do you go to? And this does make a difference because when you go to a place like Walmart, for example, which is the number one grocery store in America, that money is going to an international corporation that pays a lot of taxes, that has a lot of ends with the government. We do live in a crony capitalistic society here. It is not capitalism, not in the free market sense, and we're not quite socialism. The government doesn't control everything, but the government has a big say-so and regulates most of the economy, and we do have a touch of capitalism. That's kind of roughly what our system's based on. But these ideas have kind of merged. And in between are these corporations and this corruption that is crony capitalism. And that's kind of what we have, this socialist, capitalistic, crony society and economy. It's kind of, it's really screwed up. But that's what we have. And so... When you look at it from that perspective, the larger the company in general, the more in with all these bad aspects of our economy they will be, and therefore your money is going towards those things, and that's not really what we want. So number one is go as small as possible. Try to support small businesses and not giant international corporations as much as possible, but 
we're trying to take this a lot further than that. So going further, buy as much as what you can from places like farmer's markets or from individuals or at least a local store. So there are plenty of stores like feed and seed stores and international food stores. You've got mom and pop restaurants and all kinds of options here where you can get food and the things you need related to food from somebody that is at least a local business owner. Now, farmer's markets are even better than this because that's somewhere where you can go where all kinds of individuals come together that are individually selling items and they are local people selling local goods. And typically you can have someone that's selling meat, someone that's selling maybe jams and jellies and fresh vegetables and all different kinds of things. Farmer's markets are great. That's a way to buy from an individual. You can also just buy from individuals. If you know somebody that has chickens, maybe talk to them about getting a dozen eggs from them every week or whatever it is that you want. Someone maybe has a big garden. Maybe you can talk to them about buying a little bit of produce from them. There's lots of options here. But no matter what you're doing, if you're doing it in this way, you're keeping your money with individuals. Now, technically, all these individuals will officially be reporting all this income they earn and paying taxes on it. But realistically, that doesn't always work out that way. Just think about it. Do you report on your taxes when you have a yard sale and you make a profit from a lot of goods that you sell at a yard sale? Well, probably not. What about a lemonade stand that you set up for your kids? Are you getting a business license for that? Or are you getting permission from your local government to do so? No. Well, that's technically illegal. But that's kind of the way things work. And that is agorism. So that's good. I'm all for it. I am not going to promote illegal activity. But at the same time, illegal activity is involved in agorism. So we will talk about it. Now, let's look at a little more uncommon option, and that would be CSAs. So CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And typically, the way these work is that you buy in for a share of a farm, and in exchange, they give you the produce of their farm. And that's generally the way it works. It's usually a local farm that has maybe gardens or greenhouses, or sometimes there is meat, they have chicken, sometimes they have cows, all different types of all different kinds. You can do this with milk, as well as with meat, as well as with vegetables and fruit, all kinds of options. You can look locally at what your options are, but these exist all over the world. There are lots of different things like this, and so this is a good option because what you're doing is you are giving money to a local farm or something of the sort and getting directly the produce of that farm for yourself. And a lot of times the way this works is that you pay maybe a monthly amount and you show up once a week or once every other week and you just get a box of whatever they have. And so it's whatever's in season. It's whatever they've picked that week. It's whatever they've got on hand. If it's meat, sometimes it's maybe one chicken per week. My wife and I did this at one point last year, and we got one chicken a week, and we also got 
a giant box of vegetables of all different kinds. It was a good variety, and it did change throughout the seasons, and it was really cool. We got a lot of stuff that we wouldn't have normally bought, but that was extremely good, and it was all healthy. Their food was roughly organic. It's not certified organic, but they do not spray a lot of pesticides and things like that on the food that they grow, so it is healthier from that standpoint. And it was very nice. It was enjoyable. It was slightly more expensive than buying cheap produce at the store, but it was cheaper than buying the good stuff at the store, which is what this would actually be the equivalent of. And so it was a good thing. We enjoyed it. And that's a good option for all of us. For some more examples of where to buy your food and where to get your produce from and things like that, you can always get it from local communities. There's lots of different types of communities that take care of themselves to a large extent and grow a lot of food and sell their produce and their merchandise. Some examples of this would be like Mennonite communities or Amish communities. They typically will grow things and make things from scratch and by hand, and they will then sell that. So you're supporting, again, a local grower, a local maker, and somebody that is going to give you a usually a good quality product for what you're paying for. So that's another good example here. Now, one thing you can do with this example, especially, but with many other places, is to buy in bulk. And so you can get your goods from one of these sources that is a good option from an agorist perspective. And you can buy things cheaper when you buy it in bulk. You are not having to go back and forth to a store as many times. And so that saves you on your time, which is extremely valuable and your gas money and other things like that. Also, when you go to the store, oftentimes you buy extra things that you didn't necessarily need, but you see it and you buy it anyway. And so that will save you on that as well. So buying in bulk is another good option here. Now, another related aspect to buying in bulk would be storing food, which you necessarily have to do if you buy food in bulk. And storing food is very important for multiple reasons. Number one, it's good for an emergency stash. You never know what could happen, whether it be a crazy apocalyptic event or you just run out of power for a few days or you get snowed in for a few days or whatever the case. You will have food on hand that you can use and that is what you and your family need and what you enjoy. One very good tip for stocking up and getting a lot of stuff in store for you and your family is that Whenever you go to the grocery store and you buy something that is a thing that does not need to be refrigerated or frozen, it's something that's maybe a canned good or a packaged good of some kind, buy multiples of that product. So obviously, if it's something you're buying already, then it's something that you use. And if you use it now, you could likely easily use it in the future. And you can make a judgment on a case-by-case basis on that. But if you're buying, say, pinto beans in a can, and that's something that you do often, then just buy an extra can each time you buy some. And then you have one can that you needed that you're going to use. The other can goes in storage. And you can build up a store for yourself, for your family, by operating this way. And this way you can make sure that the things you are storing up are things that you will actually use because there are things that you have used in the past and that you do use. This is also true as we get into growing your own food. Hopefully with the leftovers that you have, you'll at least be able to store some of those for yourself. You can can things, which 
is fairly involved. It's not extremely easy, but it works really well. When you can things, they do last for a long period of time. They're easy to store, and it's just a very good option for storing extra fruits and vegetables and jams and jellies and all kinds of things like this. So that's an option. You've got freeze drying, which works especially well for fruits, but can work for other things as well. And then probably the easiest storage option is to just freeze your leftovers. So it's really easy to just get some blueberries, throw them in a Ziploc freezer bag and put them in the freezer. That's extremely easy. You can do green beans, for example. Usually you would blanch them first and then you put them in a baggie and you freeze them and that's it. Tomatoes, you can chop them up, dice them up, put them in a bag or a container of some kind and you freeze them and that's it. So freezing is a very easy option. It's usually a lot less prep. It stores not quite as well as canning or freeze drying, but stores pretty well. The other negative would be that it also takes up room. So you would pretty much need to have an extra freezer in your garage, or if you have a walk-in pantry, one in there would be very convenient, or wherever works for yourself and your house. But an extra freezer might be necessary if you are storing a good bit of extra things this way by freezing them. But no matter how you get your food, whether it be growing yourself or buying it from the store or getting it from another individual or farmer's market or wherever you get your food, it is always good to have extra on stock because you just never know what will happen. You really need to have that option of being able to feed yourself and your family. That's part of being self-reliant. It's part of pursuing your goals of self-sufficiency. When you can take care of yourself, you can take care of your family without having to rely on somebody else, without having to even go to a store or talk to a neighbor or anything. The more you can increase those options for yourself, the better off you will be. And so having a stock of food in storage is going to be something that is fairly easy to do for anyone. Like I said, whether it be buying some extra cans at the grocery store or freeze drying or canning or freezing some of your own produce you grew yourself or anything in between. It's not all that difficult to do. It doesn't take a whole lot of extra planning or expense and it can be very beneficial. It's a very good option for playing it safe and making sure that you have some backups in case anything unexpected happens. You could even just have some personal things that come up. Maybe you lose your job, or maybe someone comes down with a major illness that costs a lot of money and you don't have money to spend on your normal things that you buy, including groceries. Well, if you have a stockpile of food, that will roughly get you through for a month or two, that can be a huge benefit to you and be a life changer for someone that is in that position. You basically don't have any other options and that can get you through a tough period. So definitely keep this option in mind. Now, another related option would be once you have all these ingredients, just cook. That is a great way of participating in this. Instead of buying pre-packaged meals, pre-processed meals, uh, stuff from a restaurant or a fast food joint, cook it yourself because there are so many benefits in doing so. Number one, you can usually make a much better meal. It's much tastier. If you make a burger at home versus even a 4 or $5 hamburger uh, top of the line at a fast food joint, the one you make at home is probably the same price or cheaper and twice as good. 
And so that's nice. We like that. We like good food. There's nothing wrong with that. And it seems kind of silly to not choose so. I know it's more convenient. I know it's less time. I get it. But we have to balance these things. And balancing things like health and money and quality, all these things, it's all a balance. Life is a balance. But what I would try to promote is cooking as much as possible yourself. Now, this is not just about making a hamburger versus getting one at a fast food place. This goes down to what you're making every day for your lunches and for your dinners, for breakfast, for all your different meals. Get as far down as you can on the ingredients list, even to the point of if you can make your own sauces, that's a really good option. And you can even make things like fermented foods like sauerkraut or yogurt or cottage cheese or pickled veggies. These are all things that are very doable to do yourself. But this can also be something that you can get involved with when it comes to things that you drink. It doesn't just have to be food, but related to that would be drink. And maybe you like kombucha. That's something that you can do. I have made kombucha before. We had some kombucha that we made for probably about two years. We had a SCOBY and it was in this little container. And there are some things that you have to do. You have to feed it sugar and you have to make sure that it's maintaining its state that it's supposed to maintain. But all in all, it's fairly easy. There's nothing very complicated about it. And that's something you can do. Kombucha is pretty expensive when you buy it in the store, but it does have many benefits for you and there are many health benefits for you. It is something that you can also customize a lot. You can add fruit to it once you pour it out, and then you can have it ferment longer. You can have it carbonate longer. There's lots of different options there when it comes to kombucha. The other obvious choice when it comes to drinks would be beer or moonshine or wine. So if you're into alcoholic beverages, you can make your own. Now, these are definitely more complicated. There's more to it. It's probably not worth it unless it's just something you want to get into as a hobby or just try out as an experience or an experiment. And so this is something that you can do. But again, it is more involved. I am trying to highlight things that are extremely easy to do. So there are many different options here for what you can make for yourself. And you should just decide what works best for you. What do you want to try and probably try out lots of different things and choose what works, choose what fits into your schedule, what you and your family enjoy, what you want to do, what you're interested in. And that's what you should choose to do. So there are plenty of options of things that you can make yourself uh, as a whole that are standalone items. But getting back to the cooking aspect, the majority of the ingredients for recipes and for whatever you're going to cook, you can make yourself. You can make your own bread. You can make all kinds of things yourself. It's usually going to be better, but it's also going to be a lot healthier. It doesn't have a lot of fillers in it. There's not a lot of extra preservatives and extra chemicals and artificial sweeteners and all these different things that are in the majority of the food that you eat. I don't know if you personally are in the habit of this, but hopefully you will if you are not yet. But look at the ingredients list on all the things you buy. Again, I know it takes a little extra time, but not all that much. It's pretty quick. It's pretty easy. You just glance at the ingredients list and see what's on there. And you will probably be surprised because there is a lot on there that you have no clue what it is, as well as things like sugar, for example. There's sugar in almost everything, even in like a normal 
can of seasoned salt that's just a kind of normal seasoning. There's sugar in there usually, and it's kind of amazing how much stuff has sugar in it, but not just sugar. It's preservatives, it's other chemicals, it's food dyes. It's all these kinds of things that are not really all that healthy for you. And we'll get into some health aspects in the next episode, or actually two episodes from now, after we do the money one. But the point is that this food is going to be healthier for you. It is not as processed, therefore your body can process it a lot better and a lot easier. It is not going to add things that are bad for you into your diet and just overall, it is better for you. So that's good. That's another thing that we want. If you can save some money on healthcare, that might also be a benefit to you. So these are some really good options for how you get your food and how you get your meals. Now, what about more self-sufficiency oriented things that you can do? If you own your own property, or sometimes if you rent like a house that might have some property with it, your landlord might be okay with this. But what I would recommend is planting some producing plants on your property. So plant some fruit trees, plant some berry bushes, plant just edible landscaping in general. This is going to be very beneficial because over time, they will produce food for you and you don't really have to do much of anything to get it. They just sit there, they grow. You might have to water them if you're going through a drought or something or knock some snow off depending on the climate you live in and the time of year. But in general, they just sit there and they grow and then they give you free food. So it's kind of a win-win. There's not much to lose here. And it's very good because, again, you get free food and you are becoming more self-sufficient. You're providing something else for yourself. And that's what we're going for here. So this isn't necessarily just these things. There's a lot more you can do with growing your own food. But from a very easy, very basic standpoint... Planting a $20 fruit tree in your yard is extremely easy, it is very cheap, and extremely beneficial. So go ahead and plant multiple trees, plant multiple berry bushes, plant all these things, and you can incorporate them into your landscaping around your house, or you can just put them randomly around your property, whatever you want to do, but just do it because it is a good idea in general. It's kind of hard to go wrong with this mentality. There are also plants that you can plant that don't necessarily provide for you, but they may provide for your local ecosystem. So plant native plants, ideally ones that provide shelter and food for native animals. You've got things like butterflies and insects, but also different types of birds and squirrels and all kinds of stuff. Some of these things may be types of animals that you do not want on your property, and that's okay. But I am sure you can find some native species that live around you that you can benefit by planting some native plants. Another good thing about native plants in general is that they will be roughly accustomed to the climate that you live in, which means they require very little maintenance. Typically, they can withstand whatever extremes in the weather that you are going to have in any given year. 
because this is the environment that they are used to, that they're accustomed to. And so you won't have to water them all the time. You won't have to worry about it getting too cold. You won't have to worry about it getting too hot. You won't have to worry about a lot of the different things that you do have to worry about when you're bringing in different species that are not used to your climate or your specific area. And so native plants in general can help you out. They save you time. They can save you a little bit of money if they're keeping you from having to water them all the time if you're not getting enough rain, that kind of stuff, to keep them alive and uh, maybe prevent pests from getting on them that native plants may not be susceptible to. But then you are also providing for your local ecosystem. So that's nice. You're given a home and food for animals. That's cool. And if you can up the insect count around you, oftentimes that helps your place as a whole. And we're going to get into that later on, so I won't get more into that right now. But moving on, with growing your own food, the obvious option here is going to be a garden. So if you want to step it up and move up from just planting a tree and leaving it alone, you can plant a garden. And this can be as basic and simple as you want. Now, not everything here requires a lot of land. It doesn't require any land, actually. And so you can do something like having a little herb bed in your windowsill at an apartment. And that's very easy to do. That's not a big deal. And then you can have fresh herbs right there anytime you want. So while you're cooking, if you need some basil, you just reach up and grab some and put it in there. So that's easy and it's cheap and it's very convenient and it's very doable even in a tiny apartment. If you do have some land and a little bit of space, then make a small herb bed, a small herb garden, and you can do this on a bigger scale. Now, the same when it comes to other things. So if you are planting things in pots, you can plant tomatoes in a pot. You can get a big pot, put a tomato plant in it, and you're good to go. You water it, you give it a little trellis to grow on so it doesn't fall over on its own weight, and you're, you're set. You can have that inside, you can have it on a porch, you can have it outside. You got lots of options there. So pots are very good options. And there are other options where you can get smaller pots and put them either on a shelf or hang them on a wall and even have a grow light above them where you can provide sunlight for your plants. You water them yourself. You can have a hydroponic setup depending on how involved you want to get here. But you can do this even in a room in an apartment with no windows whatsoever. You can still grow your own stuff. And no, you're not going to be producing all the vegetables you're going to eat every week, but you actually can produce some vegetables. You can produce food for yourself, even in these very small settings. Now, obviously, when we're talking about growing our own food, it is going to be best if you do have your own property and you have a little bit of property. And so that's the ideal. So when we get into having let's start off with a little bit of land. Say you have a small back or front yard, or maybe both. Then you can do some garden beds. And this is fairly simple to do. You can lay down railroad ties are a common thing to use. However, railroad ties are usually soaked in some pretty bad chemicals and they leach out into the soil. And technically that's not recommended. But another very easy and good option would be just cinder blocks. You just line up some cinder blocks end to end and make a bed as big as you want for it. You can drive some stakes in a few of them to hold it all in place and fill it with dirt. 
and that's it. You have a garden bed that is perfect. It's slightly raised. It's very contained. It keeps the weeds out some, and it makes for an easy place to grow your vegetables. So uh, vegetable beds are a really good option. If you want to expand even further than that, you can do a plot. And so you can just plot out a big portion of land. It can be 10 by 10, or it can be 100 by 100. It's whatever you want, whatever you need. Just pick a plot in your yard that gets good sunlight, gets good drainage, all the things that you need for planting things, and just go ahead and dig up the grass, till in the soil, and plant your stuff. And there you go. You have a giant plot where you can grow all kinds of food. So you can take this to whatever extent you want. Now, depending on your climate and depending on your desires, you might want something that is able to grow in really cold weather. This would be obvious in places that are further north, but maybe you don't actually want to go all the way and invest a whole lot of money. Well, there are some options here. You have in-ground garden beds that are fairly simple to do, and there are others where you would make a garden bed, like I mentioned, with cinder blocks, and then form a basically a small tent where you have plastic, clear plastic, that drapes over in a semicircle shape over the top of the bed, and they're just little braces that go over in that same shape from side to side, and the plastic wraps over it. And what this does is it basically makes a small greenhouse, and you can even grow stuff when there is snow on the ground because it traps in heat, and it allows stuff to grow even when it's really cold outside. Now you have in-ground options too, where you dig out a small amount of ground, then you line the sides with cinder blocks, wood, whatever it is, and then you do something like a plexiglass or a plastic over the top. And so it's the same idea, it's just more in-ground instead of having a covering that raises up off the ground and over it. So there's lots of different options, but the point is that there are options. Even if you live in a very cold climate, you have ways of growing your own stuff. Now, obviously, you can do a greenhouse, and this would be doable in any climate, but it is more of an investment. But if you have a greenhouse, you can grow year-round. You can control the temperature and the climate that you grow your things in. And so that can be very convenient and very good and yield a lot of produce for you. Moving on to growing a garden, what are some other things that you can grow yourself? Let's start off with mushrooms. Now, mushrooms are something that are actually fairly easy to grow, and there are lots of options here, but the most basic would be to get a mushroom log, and so you'd get a log of a specific type of wood for a specific type of mushroom, and you set it out in a certain area, depending on what the requirements are for that type of mushroom, and you let the mushrooms grow on the log, and then you harvest them. And so that's pretty easy. Now, another option for getting mushrooms is to get them in the wild. This does take a lot of research. You have to make sure you know what you're doing because there are plenty of poisonous mushrooms out there. But I know personally multiple people that do this. They will go through the woods or maybe know somebody who has mushrooms that grow on their property or whatever, and they will collect these mushrooms, harvest them, take them home and cook them up and eat them. And so this is very doable. You can get mushrooms on your own fairly easily. So that's an option. Now, speaking of mushrooms, 
let's get into the illegal aspects of shrooms and marijuana and things of that nature. So if you are one that is inclined to participate in these types of things, these are the types of things that you can do yourself. And it probably would be a pretty good option for you. You can do a hydroponic setup, and that would probably make the most sense. Just like with shrooms, you can do a similar thing. But you can grow this stuff yourself and create it yourself and not have to deal with a drug dealer and all the risks associated with that. Now, obviously, with any type of illegal activity, you are participating in something that is risky. And that is definitely your choice on how you do that. I do not personally grow any drugs at my house. But if that is something that you participate in, it might be something worth looking into. It is fairly easy. It is something that can be very beneficial and save a lot of money for you and you can control exactly what you're getting and you don't have to deal with really sketchy people and so there are a lot of benefits there you're not having to drive on the road with this stuff or having it shipped to your house so that's maybe an option Um, with hydroponics in general which would be your normal option for like growing marijuana in your house but hydroponics can be used for plenty of legal activities like i mentioned in an apartment you can use hydroponics to grow food inside your house. And this can be done in many different ways. And it gives you a lot more control over what you are growing. You have control over your climate. You have control over the amount of light it gets, over the amount of water it gets, all this kind of stuff. And it can be very efficient and very productive. Now, if you want to take hydroponics to the next level, let's talk about aquaponics. So the general concept here is that you have a garden and you have a fish tank. Now, this can go from the scale of a small goldfish bowl size tank and a pot, or it can get as big as having a giant pond and a huge garden plot. There are lots of ways of implementing this. I'm going to just stick in the middle and say you have a 20-gallon fish tank and you have a garden bed. And let's say these are the things you're working with. Now, what happens is you are connecting the two and letting them work for the benefit of each other in a symbiotic relationship. So what happens is you have fish in the tank, let's say, or the pond or whatever you're using. Uh, We're going to say a tank. So you have fish in the tank and the water from that fish tank goes into the garden and waters the garden. Now, the water that's coming out of there is actually fertilizer for the food because you have the fish that are pooping in the water and that kind of thing. And this provides organic material for the garden to use, and it makes it very nutritious. Now, in addition to that, when the garden uses this up, it's also filtering this water and cleaning the water. And so what you do is you take the water that drains out of the garden, which is now fresh, clean, filtered water, and you dump that back into the fish tank. So obviously, when you get the fresh water coming into the fish tank, that is good for the fish. They're getting clean, fresh water. It's filtering their water for them. And so both benefit. Now, the way that you can get the biggest benefit from this is to have a fish like tilapia or some type of fish that you can eat. And so what you can do is basically farm fish, fresh fish that you farm yourself, and you're growing your own vegetables, you're doing this in a very efficient manner that is using a very small amount of water, 
and you are just continuing that process and they feed each other, they help each other, and it saves you money, it saves you time, and it gives you a very high quality product. And so it's a good option. Now, this is obviously more involved, but it's not very ridiculous. I looked pretty heavily into this. I haven't tried it myself, but I was thinking of trying it out. And so I did look at lots of different setups and how you would do it and what type of equipment you would need and that kind of thing. And it actually was fairly simple. It wasn't that big of a deal. It's kind of a a do-it-yourself project that you could probably do over a weekend without much problem at all. And so it's definitely an option if that's something that sounds good to you. Now, I mentioned fish here. Let's get into animals in general because animals can produce a lot for you. And a lot of the food we eat, if we are not vegetarians, comes from animals. Even if you are a vegetarian, if you're not a vegan and you still eat dairy products and eggs and things like that, then you are still getting a lot of your food from animals. So starting with the most basic and the easiest animals, in my opinion at least, let's start with chickens. Now chickens are super easy. You have a chicken coop that you need and ideally you have a fenced-in area or a chicken run or something that keeps them contained, but you don't necessarily have to do that. There are many places that I drive by on a weekly basis where I see chickens just running around in people's yards. And I have seen this at duplexes and places where you would not expect it, but people do it and it works. So you have lots of options, but chickens are pretty easy. You throw a little bit of food, a little bit of scratch out there every morning, and you pretty much just let them out of their coop in the morning and they go back in their coop by themselves every night and you just shut the door and lock it. And that's about it. You collect the eggs, you clean out the coop every once in a while, you make sure they have water. And yeah, it's pretty basic. And you're provided with roughly an egg a day for most egg laying breeds. Or if you are intending on using the chickens for meat, oftentimes that only takes a few months if you get a meat breed and you just have them grow for a few months and then go ahead and butcher them and then you have your chicken. And that's also extremely easy. Another benefit for chickens is that when you clean out the coop, chicken poop is an extremely good fertilizer for gardens and for anything that you need to fertilize. So that also gives you free fertilizer that's very high quality. So that's a good thing. Now, continuing with birds, you have quail as well that are fairly easy to manage. Quail, you can have just run around in the yard a lot like chickens. They do their own thing. Oftentimes they uh, have most of their diet from insects and from natural sources. And what you do is you just let them grow and then you can slaughter them. Um, They also produce quail eggs, and some people eat quail eggs. They are very small, and they don't necessarily lay them in the exact same place all the time, so it's not necessarily as convenient as chickens. They're a lot easier to use as meat birds, but there are options there, and quail are pretty easy. The next animal that I'm going to mention is a lot bigger, but really not all that difficult either, and that would be pigs. We are actually planning on getting pigs ourselves in the near future, and so I've done a lot of research on pigs. And there are plenty of options here. 
But in general, if you are not a farmer, then you are probably looking for something that is fairly easy, fairly simple, and fairly straightforward. And there are plenty of breeds like that. Most pigs you would get as piglets, you would raise them up for a matter of a few months, and they would then grow to a size where you can go and have them processed, and then you have all your pig meat. And if you want to process these things yourself, then that's even better. It's something that you don't have to pay for. You do it all yourself. You can often use a lot of the leftovers for many other purposes. And so there are benefits to doing that too. But pigs are fairly easy. You have to make sure their pens are very sturdy because they can get out. And depending on the breed, a lot of them try to get out a lot more than other animals. But in general, again, they're fairly easy. You throw them a lot of scraps, they forage, especially if you have some woods around. They love the woods, and they will dig, and they'll root, and they'll get things like acorns and nuts of various types, and they will probably thrive in an environment where you give them enough room and you just let them do their thing. They grow for a few months, like I said, and then you process them, and that's it. So pigs are a very reasonable option. What about some much smaller animals? And I alluded to pollinators earlier, and so now we'll get to bees. Well, honeybees are the obvious option here, and having honeybees is also something that is not extremely difficult. Now, some people don't like bees, and so they will not find this option very appealing, but Bees are something that are fairly easy to deal with. They don't require a whole lot of maintenance. You can get a beehive and get all your setup fairly inexpensively, relatively, and then produce your own honey. Now, not only are you producing your own honey, but all these bees are then pollinating everything around them. And so if you are growing vegetables, if you have fruit trees, all these things, you're going to up your production when you have more pollinators flying around and helping pollinate all of these things. Another even better option for pollinating that is also a bee would be the mason bee. So mason bees are much more, um, I, I hesitate to say efficient pollinators because they are much better pollinators, but it's because they're actually so inefficient. And they're apparently very clumsy. And so when they get in to a flower and they are trying to get the nectar and doing their thing. They're usually very clumsy. They get the pollen all over them and they end up with so much more pollen than just about any other bee species out there. But that makes them an extremely good pollinator because then they spread it around and they have a lot more to spread around. And so mason bees are extremely helpful for pollinating. There are many farmers that actually get mason bees and have mason bee hives and they keep them so that they can up the production of fruits and of vegetables that they are growing and i have heard reports and read reports of farmers that have seen very noticeably increased yields from getting mason bees and just having more pollinators around and so this can actually give you tangible results if you are growing your own food in some way I actually noticed last year that there were a lot of these bees buzzing around a wood pile that I had around my house, 
and couldn't figure out what they were. They weren't aggressive at all. They pretty much would leave you alone. You could walk right up to them. They wouldn't hurt you at all. They wouldn't try to sting you. They wouldn't try to chase you away. And they looked kind of like a honeybee, but they were a little darker. And as I did more research, I found out that they were mason bees. And after I learned more about them, I paid more attention to them. And they were super easy. They didn't mess with you. They're not aggressive at all. And it seems like they would be extremely easy to have around and a very good idea if you are growing things like fruit and vegetables. So that's another good thing you can do to up the yield that you're producing for yourself. Now, the other animal that I can mention here would be dogs. So dogs are not something that you would have to slaughter and eat I would hope so. Um, some people do eat dogs, and I guess no judgment on them, but that is not something that I would do, and probably most of my listeners. I doubt you would do that either. But dogs do provide a lot of good benefits and services to us, and that is the whole point of agorism, is to handle things on your own, be self-sufficient, work outside the system, and dogs can help with that. The first way that they can do that is as being a deterrent for crime a guard dog. They can let you know when someone's on the property. If a thief, for example, is going to break into a house, they're much less likely to break into a house that has a dog than one that does not. Most burglars are extremely scared of dogs, and rightfully so. That's not something you want to mess with. That is not a risk you want to take, and it alerts everybody around you. It's just not a good idea. Dogs, in many people's opinions, are better deterrents than alarm systems. And so dogs are a very good option for that purpose. But another thing you can do is breed your dogs. And so if you get a dog that is of a breed or even a mix, but a mix of breeds that are desirable for people, then you can breed them. You can breed them out with other people. And whether you breed them yourself and raise the puppies yourself and then sell the puppies and maybe keep a few at a time, and that's something that you can make a little extra money with, or maybe it's something where you have only a male dog and you basically pimp him out in exchange for payment from someone else that is wanting to get their female dog pregnant and have puppies. And so you can allow them to use your male dog. And in exchange, they can either maybe pay you, give you a small amount of money in order to reimburse you for this, or maybe they give you some of the puppies from the litter and then you can keep them, you can sell them, do whatever you want with. But dogs can produce for you in other ways. And so that's another option for having an animal that helps produce for you at your own house. I mentioned fish with aquaponics, but fish also work when you have a pond. And so most of us do not have ponds, but it is something that is reasonably possible, whether you have a pond or you dig out a place for a pond that can hold some fish, that's an option. You can breed your own fish, and then fish the pond yourself, and there you go. You can breed fish. They are pretty cheap. They're very easy, and it's a pretty simple deal. Fish are a lot easier to clean yourself and to prepare yourself than something like a pig or a cow, and so you're much more likely to be able to just handle that on your own. You don't have to take it to a butcher to process. Uh, fish is fairly simple there, and so that's another option for an animal that you grow for food. One of the most beneficial things, in my opinion, would be a dairy source. And so the typical dairy source is a cow, 
But you can also have a goat. You can also have a sheep. And there are other animals that produce milk that people do drink on a regular basis. And there are lots of options here. But typically, cow, goat, sheep, probably in that order, are the most common. And you do not have to have a ridiculous amount of land to have a cow. There are breeds of cows that can survive and thrive on an acre of grassland. And so one acre is not really all that much property. If you have an acre or more, you can technically have a cow if you would like. And that's something that you can milk and get not only all the milk you need for your family, but also plenty of leftovers for selling or giving to other people that you know, and that gives you lots of options. It's not only just milk, but you can make butter, you can make cheese, you can scrape the cream off and use the cream for whatever you use cream for, add it in your coffee or in baking things or whatever. There's all kinds of uses for cream. Uh, things like buttermilk. There's just all different things that you can get from milk when you have a dairy source, an animal that lives on your property that produces for you. This is true of cows. It is true of goats. It is true of sheep. Goats and sheep actually need even less land than a cow does, even a small breed of cow. And so that can be a good option for you. Now with milk, there are also some really good benefits to drinking raw milk and unpasteurized milk. Because when milk goes through the pasteurization process, it loses the majority of the beneficial ingredients in it for your body. It also is more difficult for your body to process. There are many people that are sensitive to lactose or that are even lactose intolerant that actually can drink raw milk or unpasteurized milk just because their bodies can actually handle that a lot better. And so there are reasons why milk is pasteurized. It is safer. You don't really have to worry about anything because it just kills it all off, and then there's nothing to really make you sick. The main danger here is that the cows are sick from some kind of disease. They have tuberculosis or something like this, and then that is then passed along through the milk. And so you do have to make sure that the cows are vaccinated and that they do not have any diseases when you get the milk from them. That is extremely important, and that is one of the most important things. And then the secondary issue is if it is not handled properly when it is attained and as it's apportioned out and that kind of thing, then you can get sick from it, and there can be bad things in there, bad bacteria and such. But in general, as long as it is treated well and with care, there are no issues, and you get so many benefits. There are probiotics in there. There are really healthy things for your gut. Like I said, your body processes it a lot better and easier. So there are lots of benefits of raw milk. I mentioned raw milk as an option for buying from an individual or a local farm, and that's actually what what my wife and I do. We subscribe to a local dairy and we get fresh raw milk every week. And so we are supporting someone that's local. We are not going to a big international corporation that is providing us with our milk and our dairy products. We are instead going to a local farm. We are getting something that has more health benefits for us, and we're using it to do many things. We've tried butter. We've tried cheese, mozzarella cheese. We definitely use cream in the milk itself and make yogurt. That's very easy to do. And so these are all things that we do. 
As another side note, yogurt is actually an easy thing to do no matter what milk you buy. You can buy milk from the store and make yogurt out of it very easily. Look it up online. It's not hard to do, and you can do it yourself, and it can save you some money. So that's another option. Moving on from animals themselves, how about how you feed the animals? You can grow your own feed for animals. That's not very difficult to do either, whether that be grain or hay or fruits and veggies and extra scraps from the food that you eat yourself. There's all different kinds of ways that you can feed your animals where you don't have to actually go out and buy a whole lot of pet food. Now, usually these sources will just supplement and you still will have to buy a small amount of food. But technically, if you're diligent about it, you can produce all the food and grow it and use your scraps and not have to buy more. So there's a good option for maintaining these animals that hopefully you have or will have in the future. Let's move on from food and move into utilities and energy. So this is another area that is very important to our lives. To live in a modern society, we need electricity. We need running water. And we need all of these things in our homes. We need them to be reliable. And this is just a need for our current lifestyles. Yes, it is possible to survive. It is even possible to thrive without electricity or without running water. And this is doable. But for the other 99.9% .9 of us, we really want utilities. We really want electricity. And this is something that we are not willing to give up, at least unless we absolutely have to. So how would we apply agorist principles to energy and utilities? Well, let's start off pretty basic with high efficiency things. To begin with, we've got high efficiency appliances. And so you can get a dishwasher, you can get a washer and dryer, you can get all these things that are high efficiency. They're made so that they do not use a whole lot of energy in order to run and perform their functions. So that can lower the energy use that is required to perform these different duties that you need done in your house. Another related option would be doing a clothesline. If you have a clothesline outside, then you don't need to use your dryer quite as much as you would otherwise. You can hang up your clothes outside on a clothesline. It is perfectly free to use the sun as much as you would like. And there are other benefits of having things sit out in the sun. The sun will bleach clothes, so it will make the whites whiter. It will keep them fresh and kill odors. It also can kill some types of bacterias and things like that that may be on some dirty clothes and may be still remaining. Hopefully nothing would be remaining after you wash them, but you know, you never know. So there are many benefits to having things dry out in the sun rather than a clothes dryer. So not only are you saving energy, you are also getting some added benefits from using this natural source, using your solar power. So there are many different ways of applying this to many different things. Now, another high efficiency aspect to a home would be insulation and sealing your home up. So this would involve making sure that your walls are insulated well, making sure that the insulation in your attic or crawl space is well insulated and sealed up really well. You want to make sure that all your windows and doors are sealed really well so you don't have leaks. And 
you also have to check your habits. So are you leaving the door open often when it's really hot outside and you're running the air conditioner? Because as long as you're leaving that door open, you are wasting your cold air in your house and having to replace that. And to replace it, you're having to use more energy. And so it is not very energy efficient. There are many things like this. Also, if the weather is nice outside, then just leave all your windows open and turn your unit off and you use no energy. And so there are many ways you can treat this. Again, there are natural sources that you can use that can be very good for yourself and for your house and save you some money all at the same time. If you are lucky enough to be building a house, then you have a lot more options. You can build an especially tight house that is basically completely sealed off. And then you usually have mechanical ventilation that will export the stale air from inside your house and import fresh air from outside from a specific source. And so it gets that exchange and that brings in really fresh air instead of what usually happens is a house will draw most of its extra air from the attic or the crawl space, which are not very clean air sources. So instead, you can mechanically make sure you get it from an outside fresh source, which would be even better. So that's one option, a really tight house. The other option is to design a loose house. There were many techniques that were used to keep a house cool or to keep a house warm before we had mechanical systems. And you can take advantage of that. You can design a house in such a way that you can take advantage of cross breezes, that you can let the hot air out of your house and the cool air in, position windows in certain ways, design it where your hallway and your rooms are positioned in certain ways. You can make sure that the way that the sun travels when it rises and sets is never shining directly into windows and all the windows are shaded. So you're not adding extra heat into the house that you don't want. All different kinds of things. There are so many. That is an entire podcast. There are many podcasts on building a home and designing it to be highly efficient. So I am not getting into all of that. But the point is that there are many options open to you if you are building a house, especially. Now, what about your more stereotypical options when you say, how do you take care of energy on your own? Of course, that would be alternative energy sources, things like solar power and wind power or geothermal. There are lots of options like this where you can take advantage of natural sources of energy and natural sources of heating and cooling and take advantage of those for your own house in a way that is very efficient. One option for this, and probably the main option that most people do, is to have one of these sources, let's just go with solar power for the example, it's probably the most common, and say you have some solar panels on your house, but you are still connected to the grid. And so with this, you are generating some of the power that you need for your home, and you are getting the rest from the grid, and so they kind of offset each other, and you have a much lower utility bill at the end of the month because you're providing a lot of power yourself. And so this can be very beneficial to you. Now, I will say that at least our local utility does not allow you to use your own solar power if you are connected to the grid. The way the system is set up here is that you can have solar panels on your house and you can be connected to the grid. But the way it works when you do that is that your solar power goes into the grid to the electric company 
and then all the power you use for your house comes from the grid. And what they do is they basically just cancel out whatever you generate for whatever you use on your monthly bill. And so in practice, it ends up being roughly the same. But the problem is that when the power goes out, you still don't have any power. Even if it's a perfectly sunny day and your solar panels could generate all the power you need, you can't access that because of the regulations from the utility company. They don't allow you to use your own generated power. I actually received a notice a few months ago that is saying that they are no longer going to even allow people to have solar power and be connected to the grid at all. So any solar power that you have for your house will have to be completely off the grid. So if people want to go with this option, they might just power, for example, a garage or some specific things and that's what they would have to do or just be completely off grid because the local utility is no longer going to support this. And so there are some issues. Every location is different. Every community and company is different. Every utility company is different. So you'll have to look into how these things apply for yourself. But I know that in general, most solar setups, no matter what extent you go to for them, they will pay for themselves in roughly 10 years or so, give or take, depending on your location and the prices you pay and that kind of stuff. But that is not too ridiculous. A 10-year investment and then everything beyond that is basically free because it's already paid for itself. That's a pretty good deal. That's generally well worth it for most people. So if you live in a place that you own and you are going to stay in long term, solar can be a very good option for you. In general, wind power is not typically used for residential purposes, but it is possible uh, geothermal is one that is more popular for residential than wind, but it is also not extremely common and doesn't have the same investment to payout ratio as solar does, at least currently, and so it is not as common either. The examples I was using were for setups where you are on the grid and producing energy yourself. But ideally, if you want to take this to the full extent, you provide all the energy you need yourself. You're completely off the grid. And this can be a very viable option. What you would do in our example of using solar power is you get enough solar pa panels to where you can produce all the power you need for your house. And the way it works is that you get a battery set up, a storage battery that will store all the extra power that's generated that you're not using. So typically during the day, you're not going to be using a whole lot of energy. Most people are at work or doing things that you don't need a whole lot of light or energy for. And so there is extra energy that's being generated by your solar panels. So what happens is it uses what it needs to for your house, and then all that extra gets stored in a battery. And then what happens is at nighttime, when the sun is not giving you very much energy through your solar panels, your house will draw energy from that battery, and then it can power everything you need for the house. Now, at this point in time, I think the average on most batteries is that they store roughly 24 hours or more worth of energy for a typical home in them at a time. So that's a good bit of time. If you have no sunlight for 24 hours, you can still power your house at a normal rate. 
Now, obviously, if it's an extended period of time, you could ration how much power you use, and that would be a viable option. What I would also definitely recommend for everyone is to get a generator. And then you can at least power your necessities, your heating or cooling device, and probably your fridge and freezer. And that would be your main things. If you have other needs, then you can power those other needs as well and get a generator that is the correct size to power all the things you need. If you have this backup of a generator, then your issue of being off the grid is not so much of an issue. If you run out of solar power, if there's an extended storm for a long period of time and you aren't generating enough, then you just fire up the generator for the time that you need it and you go on with your life and you don't skip a beat. It's not really much of a problem. And so that is a very reasonable way of not relying on anybody else to have the energy that you need to power the lifestyle that you have now and the home that you have now. That's a very good option. Now, also, if you are generating extra energy that you are not using, and maybe it's too much to store in a battery pack, or maybe you don't have a battery set up and you're just using what you generate, then there are options of using this energy for your own good and making money off of it. The most obvious would be cryptocurrency mining. And so you could set up your computer to mine cryptocurrencies, which basically means your computer is allowing itself to be used to process transactions on a blockchain network. If you're not familiar with this stuff, this might not make a lot of sense to you, but I am actually doing episodes on blockchain and cryptocurrencies, uh, a few series from now, and so we'll get into all that. But the point is that basically you use the processing power on your computer to help run a network, and in exchange, you get paid in a cryptocurrency, typically, for the use of your processing power. And so what you're doing is you're using energy to power your computer and to process these transactions. And in exchange, you're getting cryptocurrency, you're getting paid for it. And so if you have extra energy that you can't use anyway, that it's more than what you need, then you can use it to run your computer. So it's basically free energy and you're actually getting paid for it. So you're getting money for the energy that you don't need. That's extra. There are also other examples of using extra energy to power things that will make you money. And so this is not the only option, but this is the most obvious and probably the easiest to set up. But there are many ways of taking advantage of being very energy efficient and generating energy on your own. No matter what you choose to do for being in more control over your energy use in your own home, the things that you definitely want to be in control of and have some backups for are heating and cooking. So if you are willing to just, you know, suffer through and you're living in a climate where it doesn't get extremely cold, then you might not really have to worry about heating. Maybe you can just bundle up with blankets and if it only gets down to say 50 degrees at night, that's not really a big deal. But if you're living in a climate where it gets down into the below freezing temperatures, then if your power were to go out for multiple days, you really do need to be able to heat your home. You need a way to do that. And you need to do this in a way that is not reliant on the grid. You need a self-sufficient way of producing heat. So you can do this by having a generator, like I've mentioned. You could also have a wood-burning stove. 
You could have gas. That is a good option. So you could have propane or natural gas that runs either a fireplace or some other sort of heating source. There are lots of different options here. It's a similar thing with cooking. So technically, you can build a fire outside and cook something on it that, that's doable, or you can just have meals that don't need to be cooked. It's possible. You can survive on that. That's not a huge deal, but it's not what most of us would want, and it's not always conducive to what we have in stock and on hand. So having an option for being able to cook things, such as a wood stove or having gas that runs your oven and your stove and that kind of stuff, or running a microwave off a generator or whatever. There's so many different options. Do what works best for you, but do make sure that you have an option for heating when necessary in your climate and for cooking according to what you would need, assuming that you got in a position where, let's say you just didn't have power for a week, what would you need to be able to heat your home and cook your food so that you can continue and get along without needing help from anybody else? Because there's not always that option of getting help from other people. Ideally, that always exists, and usually it does, but it's not a guarantee. So be prepared. That way, if you were to find yourself in a situation that you needed to take care of these things on your own, then you can. And that is a number one, a very good feeling to have. And that knocks another worry off your list. But number two, it's just a wise thing to do and be prepared for. So there's also more to utilities than just energy. Energy is the main one, but Water is probably the second biggest thing when it comes to utilities. Water is very important. We need it to survive, and we use it for so many different things that we do on a daily basis. There are plenty of options for collecting your own water, though, and not just using the local water that's provided to you by your city or county or utility company, wherever you get it from. That is, number one, not a guaranteed source. Something could happen, although this is extremely rare. It's unlikely that your water would go out for a long period of time. But hey, it's possible. Anything's possible. But more important would be the money that you're spending on water. In some places, that's extremely cheap. Like where I live now, it is extremely cheap to use water. We typically pay about 20 to $30 every other month for water, so it's extremely cheap. But I recently visited some family on vacation, and they were talking about how they pay around $300 a month for their water. So it really depends on where you live as to what these costs are. But either way, even with me, with a very small water bill, I can save more money if I use less water. That's just common sense, and it does work. And if I only save 10 bucks, hey, that's 10 bucks I save. There is nothing bad about that. There is only good things that come from saving money. So there are multiple options to go with here, but the main thing that I will cover will be collecting rainwater. That's probably the most common. That's the most basic. That's something everyone can do. At a very simple level, what you can do is just get a rain barrel. Now, typically these will attach to a gutter downspout off your house. So what happens is when it rains, the water comes through the gutter, comes down the downspout and into your rain barrel. Usually rain barrels will have a nozzle at the bottom or a hole at the bottom where you can release the water when you need it. And so when it rains, the barrel fills up. Usually there's a little screen at the top or something that's a minor filtration device, and then you use that water whenever you need it. 
So this is the most basic option. If you get a little more advanced, then you just have multiple rain barrels. You have one at each downspout, maybe, and that would give you more water to work with. The next step from that would be to have some sort of reservoir. Now, this can be a large, giant container-looking thing that's um, beside your house, or what I've seen done many times is that people will dig out an area and then put one underground and bury it with a small amount of soil on top and give access to that so you can make sure you can get to it for maintenance reasons, but it's not an eyesore. There are lots of different options for how you want to collect your water, but if you have something that is large that gives you a water reservoir, then you have options of collecting even more water and doing more with it. Now, as far as how you use the water, like I said, with a rain barrel, usually there's a spout at the bottom, and that's very simple. It's very straightforward. You just turn the spout on or hook something up to it or whatever. However it is designed, you use it that way, and then gravity pushes the water out of the barrel, and usually you have a hose attached to it, or you fill up a bucket or whatever you want to do, and you can use water that way. Another way of doing it, especially if you have a bigger reservoir, is you hook up a water pump as well, and then you have a lot more options because the water is actually being pumped out and you're not just relying on gravity. So you have more options when it comes to that. I do want to mention that there are plenty of options and plenty of plans and ideas for doing this stuff on your own. I've looked it up myself and I have not done it myself. I actually have some standard rain barrels that were given to me by someone else, but I did look up how to make one on your own and there are so many different options and they are actually a project that most people that are slightly handy can do. It will take you some time and there are some supplies that are needed, but even big reservoir systems are things that do not need a licensed plumber to set up. They're not all that complicated. Like I said, it does take some research. It will take some time. You got to get the materials. There is stuff involved. You're making something yourself. There's always stuff involved with that kind of project, but it is something that's doable. So if that's something you're interested in, you can even do that on your own. Then you can choose how it connects to your downspout or what the container looks like or how you get water out of it. Whatever you want to do, you can do because you are doing it on your own. You're doing it yourself. So moving on, what do you use this water for? Because you've collected this water. Now, what good is it if it just sits in a barrel? It's not any good. And you're not just going to pour water out into a glass and drink it because it is not purified water. It hasn't been filtered to a great extent. So what do you do with it? Well, the most simple thing would be to water your vegetables and your gardens, your fruit trees, whatever producing things that you have that produce food, water them with this rainwater. The second option is to water your animals with this rainwater. It's not going to hurt either one, and it's actually usually better for both animals and plants when you're using rainwater to water them with because rainwater is natural and it doesn't have the added chemicals that city water will have. If you're getting water from the system, it is going to have things like fluoride, usually chlorine sometimes, small amounts of other trace chemicals. There's just things in it that necessarily, kind of necessarily, I guess, have to be in it in order to make sure that the water is clean and purified when it comes out and goes through the pipes and gets to people's houses. There are lots of different reasons why they put lots of different things in your water, but it's not just 100% water. There's stuff in there, and that stuff 
inhibits the growth of some plants and is not technically good for animals either. Now, it's not a big deal, but I was actually talking to a friend a few days ago, and he was talking about how there was a dry spell, I think it was last summer, the summer before last, and his garden wasn't doing really well, so he was having to water it on a daily basis, put a sprinkler on it. But he was saying that there was a huge difference between doing that and watering it from a hose that was attached to his house and other years when he has not had to water it very much and it just naturally was watered through the normal amount of rain that we get around here. And he said it didn't really produce very well. The plants didn't grow very well. They didn't get very big. They didn't produce a lot. And he chalked it up to being the type of water that they were getting, which actually does make sense. So this does have a tangible and real effect on the plants that you're growing you're probably not going to see a huge effect on your animals, but plants a little more so, and it actually can be a noticeable thing. There are some other things that you can do with this water that you catch than just watering plants and animals. You can actually use it in your house. Now, obviously, if you're using it in your house, then your house has to be set up to be able to use something like this. You're probably going to need to have a reservoir and piping, and this is going to have to be planned out. This probably would involve a licensed plumber or someone that really knows what they're doing. But if you want to get that involved... The most common thing that people do with their own water collection systems is to use it for what's called the gray water sources in their homes. So things like toilets and the washing machine and the dishwasher and things like this where it's not water necessarily that you're cooking with and that you're drinking. It's just water that you need for these different appliances and things in your home that you use in your home, but it really doesn't have to be purified to an extreme extent. Now, usually people will do some added filtration with this, but nothing too extensive and nothing too detailed because there's really no point. You don't need to have perfectly purified water to flush your toilet with. That's really a waste and there's no reason to do that. So you can use this in these gray water systems and gray water sources, and that's definitely an option that you can do. Now, if you want to take that another step further, then there are people that fully filter the water that they store, and then you can use it for drinking. You run it to your sinks and to the things that you actually use for cooking and for drinking, and it's purified. You purify it, you filter it, and it's perfectly good water. Now, this does involve a more complex system, and this is much more detailed than what I'm trying to highlight in this episode as far as easy things that are practical that you can do yourself. This is probably not one of those, but it's doable. And I just want to let you know that there are options there. There are people that are fully self-reliant when it comes to the water that they need in their daily lives. And so this is definitely a possibility. Now, More than likely, you or I and most people are going to do something like some rain barrels. And that's pretty simple. That's not very involved. It's something you can easily do yourself. And there are good benefits to that. It's a practical thing to do. But there are also those that take it much further. And so there are options there as well. Now, moving on from water, there is one last thing I want to mention when it comes to power, and that would be powering your vehicle. So gasoline, that is something that is 
necessary, or at least it used to be necessary in society if you wanted to get around places. But now there are other options and there are ways of lowering your reliance on gas because that is something that is a resource that most of us need to get around to power our vehicles and we are reliant on other people for that. I don't know of anybody that just makes their own gas at home and has their own oil well and can do all that and process it and refine it and all that stuff. That's generally not something that happens. So we are reliant on other people to get the gas to power our cars, which means we are reliant on other people in order for us to be able to drive somewhere. Now, that is not very good when it comes to a perspective on self-reliance and agorism. We want to be able to help ourselves. We want to be outside of a system and take care of things ourselves. So how do you do that? Well, the answers are pretty obvious, and you probably have already thought of them. Number one would be the easy route of just get a very fuel-efficient vehicle. That's definitely an option. Then it lowers your reliance. You still need gas to power your car, but not as much. If you're getting 50 or 60 miles to the gallon, then it doesn't really take all that much to get you where you need to go. You can keep some gas in store on hand and if you have anything that runs on gas which most of us do whether it be a lawnmower a weed eater a vehicle whatever you should also store gas on hand you should have it in your garage or wherever you would store it it's a lot like i talked about storing food if anything were to happen then it is good to have that option and to have that resource on hand because you may not have access to it given whatever the circumstances are that you are in. So that's something that you should have. Now, there are options that do not require gas, and this would be an even better way to go, and that would be an electric vehicle as probably the most common and the best way to go if you are going to have a vehicle. And with an electric vehicle, obviously, you don't need any gas. You just plug it in, and that's it. So especially if you are generating your own solar power on your own house, then you're using that power to charge your own car, and then you drive it around and you bring it back home and recharge it, then you're not reliant on anybody. You are completely self-sufficient when it comes to energy if this is something that you do. And this is definitely an option. There are plenty of affordable options for electric vehicles today, right now on the market, and that is only expanding from here on. So that's a very good way to be self-reliant and self-sufficient when it comes to your own transportation. Now, another option would be things like walking and biking and skating and things that are not powered, even an electric bike, something like that that you can get around with, you can get from here to there without just having to walk, but that does not actually require any gas. It's not a vehicle. There's not as much money regarding to maintaining it and things like that. So those are options, but those are very subject to where you live and what your conditions are. So what this really comes down to is basically where you choose to live. If you want to have an option like this where you are not as reliant on these types of things like transportation, then maybe you want to live in an area that's more in the city, more of an urban setting where you can walk to the store and you can walk around to most of the things that you do in your daily life. Then you don't really need a vehicle or if you have one and you use one, you won't use it nearly as often. Or maybe you can bike to everywhere you need to go, even to work and back. And that really makes you less reliant on the system in general, which is a good thing. Now, 
with that setting, you're usually giving up some other things. You're probably not going to be able to have a cow if you live in some sort of urban environment in a townhome downtown. You're not going to be able to have a cow. That's just not possible. They don't have cow pastures and you're not going to be able to buy two acres of land unless you are a millionaire. And so that's not really an option. You do give up a lot of these other options, but there are things that you gain and there are ways of making that work as well. So even just where you live and the location that you choose and what's around you can help determine what types of things you can take advantage of from an agorist perspective. It's also the same on the other side of the coin when you get into getting property and actually buying a home versus renting. That's kind of a big deal. I'll talk about our culture when it comes to owning versus renting things in a future episode. But in general, that is an option that you have when you choose where to live. Are you going to buy a place or rent a place? Well, if you want to take advantage of most of these things and be self-reliant, then buying a place would be the way to go. Otherwise, you are reliant on the landlord, number one. But number two, you can't really change the property and change the house very much in order to make yourself more self-reliant and self-sufficient because it's not your property and it's not your house. So that limits your options. Let's say you choose to buy because you want to have more of these options. Well, how much property are you going to buy? Are you going to buy something that has maybe a small back or front yard or both? Well, you can do a lot of these things with just a very small amount of land that's very doable. But if you want to have an orchard of fruit trees and a bunch of berry bushes and have a cow or raise some pigs to slaughter every year and have some chickens and have a lot more options, you're going to need more land. You're probably going to need an acre of land or so. Or if you are ambitious, you can get 10 acres or 20 acres. It just really depends on where you live, what you can afford, what you want. But the point is that choosing the setting that you live in, choosing the physical place that you live and the building and the property that you are on really has a lot to do with what your options are and has a lot to do with agorism in general because it really is one of the biggest factors in how you can be self-sufficient and how you are not going to be able to be self-sufficient. It is a determining factor in what your options are. So that will wrap up our section on energy, and I think I'm actually just going to wrap up the episode here. I was going to get into physical items and stuff in general, but I'll save that for the next episode. The next episode will be talking about markets and money and taxes and things of that sort, and things, material things and physical items are definitely something that you buy in a market and they are something that powers the economy and so i can see how that would fit into the money episode that will be next time and i'll just go ahead and do that otherwise this is going to be an extremely long episode and i was trying to get away from the extremely long episodes we just got out of with the corruption and conspiracy section we just did because those were all very long so i will save that for next time and I will wrap this one up here. If this seems a little less organized than normal, there is a good reason for that. I had actually recorded an entire more than hour-long episode on activism and social change from an agorist perspective. And when I finished that episode, I just felt like it wasn't very beneficial. It was a lot of information, and it was good from that perspective, but just didn't really seem like most of the stuff mattered. I finished recording it, and 
I just didn't want to put it out there, so I scrapped it. And then I had to reorder what these next few episodes would be about because I wasn't prepared for that. I had outlines for three episodes of agorism and then a self-sufficiency episode and another one on examples. And so I had to change the order, combine different ones. And so, yeah, it's a little jumbled. I also just got done with a vacation. And so generally I have a few episodes recorded ahead of time that I can always put out if I am not able to record an episode one week. Well, I used up all those during the course of my vacation. And so I was left with having to get back to doing this week to week. And so changing everything in the schedule for the next few episodes kind of threw a kink in it. But we are still covering all the stuff I want to cover. And I will add in the most important content and what I felt like was the good stuff out of that episode on activism and social change. I will add that into... Not the next episode, but the following one on education. We'll talk about some of that stuff then. And so you won't miss out on the core content that I had recorded in the scrapped episode. Also, I never mentioned this. I'm sorry I forgot about it. But in the financial episode on corruption and conspiracy, I at least believe it was in that episode, I referenced information on the House of Rothschild that that might be included in that episode if I get to it, if I had time for it. And if not, it wouldn't be. Well, we didn't have time for it. I didn't get to it. It's not included there. But I did end up recording a whole episode on the House of Rothschild and the background of the Rothschilds, what they've been involved in, mostly involved in the behind-the-scenes workings in many wars throughout our history, and also just their other connections, how they're involved now, relating to people like the Clintons and Trump and different things like that. So I did record a whole episode. It is out there, but I released that on the Patreon page. So for any patrons that want to contribute and want to give money to this podcast and to help support the content that I'm putting out there, that is available for you. We currently have one patron who is greatly appreciated, and that person is able to access that episode now, but anybody else that joins up gets access to all of the exclusive episodes. I think there's five or six that are out there currently. I try to put one out every month. I don't always get to that, and with only one patron, I don't feel quite as obligated. I can personally talk to this person and make sure that they are happy with what they are getting, and so I don't feel quite as obligated to make sure I'm getting them out there every single month on the dot and everything else. But if we are able to grow that base and get more patrons out there, then I will make sure I get very organized on that and very consistent and also try to put out even more content and get some more input on what you guys want, uh, the patrons at least, and give them what they want. That's kind of the goal, especially with season one going on right now. We are probably a little past halfway, I would guess, but season one's fairly structured. The whole point is to get a whole season worth of content out there that is all the basic stuff that everyone needs to know about society, government, money, economics, education, the education system, all this kind of stuff. I'm trying to get through all this in a chronological, roughly order that 
covers the evolution of society from a perspective that you don't hear in school, that you're not going to hear from your typical mainstream sources. And so that's my goal is to get all this out there. So I can't really fit in a random episode on the Rothschilds, for example, uh, that just doesn't really fit. And there are other things. I want to do an episode on investing, for example. And although that kind of ties in, all of this stuff ties in with what we discuss, it just doesn't really fit into this season. So when I have things like that, that I'm recording episodes on that are kind of outside of the scope of season one, then I'll release it on the Patreon page. And anyone that's a patron can access that. You have your own private podcast feed that you can type into your podcast app, or you can listen to it directly through the Patreon page. And then you are able to get this extra content. Now, maybe after I finish season one, I might put some of that content out there for everyone, but I also might not. It kind of just depends on how I structure season two. And that depends on the patrons first. They get first say in what season two looks like. And then secondarily will be all of the other listeners. Everybody gets input on this and I will take everybody's input into consideration. So that's the plan and that's kind of what's going on. But getting back to this series now on agorism, we have discussed everything related to what agorism is and how that relates to our lives in food and energy. So next time we'll get into physical items and money and markets and taxes and that kind of stuff. And then following that, we'll get into self-education and activism and social change and things that you just should know and teach yourself because no one else is going to teach you. And then the plan is to do two episodes in a row that cover roughly the same idea, and that would be examples of agorism. So for our themes episode, what's typically our themes episode after we do government money education, the rough plan is to do one episode covering individuals who are practicing agorist concepts and then do an episode on groups or communities that are doing this as well or have in the past I have not firmed up exactly everything that will be covered here. The ideas for individuals are Cody Wilson, Ross Ulbricht, um, Amir Taki, maybe Schaefer Cox. I've got a lot of options here and people that I am thinking of covering. Maybe I'll cover them all. Maybe I won't. We will see. The next episode, which is usually our case study episode, will be the one on groups and communities. That one I am less sure about. I'm pretty sure that I want to cover Rojava and Neutral Moorsnet maybe for a history example. I'm thinking of maybe doing something about some communities, the Amish, the Quakers. There's a lot of options with religious communities there and communes. There's also the option of something like Waco, for example, there are lots of options here, and again, I have not firmly decided. So if you are listening to this episode as it releases, or sometime within roughly a week after it releases, feel free to give me some input. If any of this stuff I've mentioned sounds good to you, I'm at a point now where I am not caught up yet on my episodes, so you can help me make that decision. If anything stands out, then let me know. You can hit me up on Twitter or send an email, or if you're a patron, get on there and send me a message on Patreon, 
whatever method or mode is easiest for you. But if any of these individuals or any of these groups or concepts sound really good to you, you definitely want to hear it covered, then let me know. As long as it is right now, if you're listening to this episode in the future, then sorry, no input there. But you can have input on future episodes no matter what time you're listening to this particular one. Hopefully you enjoyed the information that was provided in this episode. Hopefully you'll enjoy the next few episodes. If you haven't already, please do rate and review the podcast. It really does help. Also spread the word to anyone that you know who may benefit from this information, who may be interested in it. That is also one of the big impacts you can have and really help to spread the word about this kind of stuff. In addition to that, you can support us through Patreon. I mentioned the Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes for that. There is also the option of sending me feedback. That is extremely beneficial. That really helps. Just send me an email and let me know what you think about the podcast. Just if there are specific things that you do like, that you don't like, that you want to hear more about, that you want to hear less about, whatever the case may be, give me feedback. I use that feedback. It is very beneficial. So that is another way that you can support the podcast and help out and help me out personally and help the podcast out as a whole. There is also the website that you can go to and the link for that also is in the show notes. And there you can see the rough outline for season one that does change, but I try to edit it as I change it. I will need to edit it again now that I've changed the plan for these agorism episodes but it does have the rough outline and it is roughly accurate and so you can see kind of what's going on what we've covered before what we're covering coming up and get an idea of what that looks like there is also a little bit about resources that i use different books and podcasts and stuff that that i use for my own resources for all this information that i would recommend that you listen to and that you read and that you use if you want to learn more about these subjects and finally i do have a twitter account for the podcast that is at foundations pc that is also in the show notes like everything else and that is something that you should be following for little tidbits on anti-government propaganda and information and things like that so that's it for this episode thank you very much for listening thank you very much for all of your support of all different kinds i'm out peace thank you for listening Bye.